just as a, uh, what a great way to start the day. What a great, <clears throat> joyful way to engage this morning. So I hope that's been encouraging to you already. Um, hey, I want to cover a, uh, a little bit of uh, family business here for everybody. Um, one is, uh, I want to um, greet you with the Lord be with you. Good, good. Y'all are getting it. Um, uh, one of the, uh, I'm looking forward to in a couple of weeks explaining to you where that comes from. And um, it's, just, it's just a really encouraging story, wherever you're from. So, um, okay, so basic info about the building. We've had some people asking, uh, are, aren't we building a building? And, and what's the deal with that? So uh, just to give you a heads up so that you do know about it, um, we've got some pictures. There's some out in the foyer. Um, and so it may look like the whole building project, the, the next children's ministry building, is like a duck on the surface of the water, just kind of placidly floating along. But I promise you there's a whole lot of this going on underwater. And so um, there's multiple teams um, that, that uh, Terry and then um, t- was taken over by Gary that helped um, create the concepts. And then Dave Sherman is running the project. Um, and we've got architects and all kinds of people involved. And um, so this is, this is looking at the building actually from the back as if you went up on the field and looked at it where it will be. So go ahead and go to the next one. Um, this is up close, up near the front of it. There's going to be a playground in there. And these are still, these aren't finished. There's still some design changes likely to happen. This is kind of looking from the street. And then one more, I think we have. And so you can see how it connects. So literally, it will go straight out. If you're on that second floor of the uh, children's building now and you walked out that back door, you would walk straight across a walkway to this new building. And so um, it's really cool, really fun. And many, many of you have already been involved um, the, a lot of people pledge some money for this. All of you who work in children's ministry know that this is needed. Um, I, I really, asking some different people um, for questions about, we have so many signs of health in our church, membership growing, um, finances are healthy, um, volunteers increasing, although we still always need more of those, um, all that kind of stuff. But our, but our actual attendance, Sunday morning in the service attendance, has not grown um, in the last year or so. It stayed it's relatively level. And when I ask somebody about that who's been at this business a whole lot longer than I have, and, and he said, Are, is your children's ministry pretty full? I said, actually, yes. And he goes, well, there you go. So apparently we need to be able to expand the space in our children's ministry. Um, and that's what he thinks is at least was a part of it. And so um, this, is, this is fun and exciting. I really would love for you to give you the opportunity to be on board. We had um, a whole lot of different families pledge. Um, in fact, 301 plus, if you remember correctly. And, uh, and so... Um, we're very excited about this. You are, you would, if you would like to invest in the, um, you know, the eternal impact for these kids, you are welcome to do that at any point. Um, we've actually had some people ask, like, can we give to the building yet? So yes, yes, sir. We've had a, a fund in place for about two years. You could have given at any point along there, um, and including now. So if you want to give before the end of the year, that's a good thing to do. Also, I'll let you know about a. We're probably looking at a groundbreaking, by the way, in February. Um, looks like the timeline that we're on is about February for a groundbreaking. So again, even though you're not seeing a lot of stuff happening, um, we've pledged a little over four million. About four point one million has been pledged. We've already brought in close to two million of that. And so over the next two years, there's a three-year pledge thing. And so we're not even a full year into the pledge drive. And so feel free to continue to give to that. And if you didn't get involved in the original, um, we would love to have you involved in this project as well. So. Um, it's kind of one of those funny things like, I don't like talking about it in the service just because it, it 
it can be read incorrectly, but what that means is then you have people coming up and saying like, so are we still doing the building? Or So it's, 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 a, uh, it's a tough integration. So that's one thing. I also want to let you know about a couple other things that we're doing um, as a church to encourage you as well. So one is you've noticed, you've known, we've had over here for years the prayer corner that at the end of the service, Paul or whoever is giving the announcements at the end says, hey, this is open. If you would like for someone to pray with you about anything at all, there'll be somebody over there to meet you there and pray. So that's there. During the meet and greet, we say, hey, we've got a welcome desk over there, and there's always lovely people back there who would like to give you a gift and tell you that you're a wonderful person and, and, and let you know how proud we are that you're here and just encourage you. So uh, that's been there for a long time, since as long as I've been here. Now we have a new corner. Over here, we have our communion corner. So here's the thing. Um, a, lum- a number of people who are part of our church come from a background that's different. You don't come from a non-denominational church or even a Baptist church. You come from a main, one of the mainline denominations like Episcopal or, or Lutheran or something like that and, um, or Roman Catholic or something. And the, the experience of the Lord's Supper or Eucharist, and we spent a third of our service last week teaching through the details of that. So if that's unclear to you, it's online. You can go back and look at it. Paul gave a great explanation of of all the different words that maybe you grew up with calling um, taking the Lord's Supper. So here's the thing. For many of you, you would say, like, this is an important part of worship for us is every Sunday as a family to be able to take communion together. Um, and so since that's not part of our, our whole service, we want that to be back there. So that if you want to stay a little late, if you want to show up a little early, and you and your family want to take communion, you can do that any Sunday morning right back there. It'll be set out every morning except the mornings when we're doing it as a whole church, which we'll still do it four to eight times a year with the entire church. Um, Four of those will be with a whole teaching and everything going around it like we did last week. So just want you to have that opportunity. For some people, that is a vital part of engaging with God on Sunday morning. Maybe it's never been for you. Um, I've been in both types of churches. Um, and it's never been for you, and maybe it should be. So don't hesitate to, the, to, to partake of that, of those elements back there. Um, and the only thing we would ask is that you do not partake of the elements alone. Um, you need to have at least somebody else with you. There needs to be, a, it's a community activity. So we need, you need to have a friend, a spouse, a family, all that kind of stuff, your life group. Um, just, just do that, and right back there, And there's even some steps for guides if you want to follow that for how you do that. So that's, that's one. Make sure you know that's there. Um, which is exciting to me. So, um, and then the last one is, we want community prayer to continue to grow as a major part of our church as well. Um, but here's the thing, in today's world, if we said Tuesday night at 6, we're all going to meet up here at the church and pray, the pattern is that between 6 and 12 of us would come here and pray. And, um, and 6 would be staff. Um, because we have busy lives. And, and kind of hardwiring in, a, this is a time for prayer, is really hard for most of us, um, especially to drive somewhere. You're not, you know, it's, you're going to go spend 30 minutes in prayer after driving 15 minutes to get there and driving 15 minutes home, and it's, it's totally understandable. So um, we want to create a community prayer service for the 21st century, and that is um, we want to create opportunities throughout the week of essentially prayer pods, and I don't mean that sound weird, that's just what came out of my mouth when I said it, and now it's, on the, now it's going to be on the screen, but um, the prayer pod meetings. And so here's the thing. Our encouragement is that if you're a, if you're a, a, um, a life group leader, if you're a, um, a teaching any of the classes, if you're on the leadership board, if you're a deacon, any, t- any role of service and leadership in the church, um, we would love to encourage you, if you're just someone who loves to pray, if, if you that you would communicate with us a time and a place during the week, every week, that you're going to be praying. 
And we will post that on the website, and someday when we have our church app, it'll be on the church app, and then you can look and see. So this is the start. This is our leadership staff, um, that this is when we pray. This will be on the website. You can take a picture of it. This is when we will be somewhere up here, either in this room or maybe on the back porch or whatever. You can come find us at this time, and we'll be praying um, for the kingdom, for the church, for each other, um, for what God is doing, for our nation, all of that. Um, and so what my, my hope is that in time we would have 30 or 40 and maybe someday down the road more of these prayer pods that meet that you would say, you know what, um, I work in this building and so I'm going to meet at this coffee shop at this time for prayer if anyone would like to join me and we'll publish that on the website and anyone can come join you there at that time and meet with you. And so it may be nobody, maybe just you and that's, that's okay because obviously the most important ingredient of prayer is God, not us. And so um, he'll be there, I feel confident. And so you can, uh, you can gather and pray with him at any point, but it would be a neat way. So my hope is that we'll have 30, 40, whatever of these in our church, and each of them will have six to 12 people showing up um, to pray, uh, which would be pretty amazing. So we'd love for you to be a part of that. We'd love for you to help lead in that. This is up here. The staff is up here just to show you an example. We would like to see a whole bunch more than this. Um, you don't need a staff member present with you to pray. I hope you, I hope you know that. Um, that's, that's not what we believe. So, good? Have I been clear on those? Any, any un- uncertainties about any of those additions? Like you're going to ask a question, right? Like, I'm not going to ask, I'll wait till after. Anyway, so, okay. Um, then let's jump into the end of the book of Judges. Now, I, I want to let you know up front, I'm not happy about teaching the end of the book of Judges. Um, uh, I wasn't, as many of you have noticed, I wasn't, I wasn't super happy about teaching through the book of Judges at all. Like, I want to be back in Ephesians where it's fun. And, and the book of Judges is really hard um, to study through and to look at. And you're seeing some gross aspects of humanity. Um, now, I will tell you, one of the things, there's a number of different reasons why I've decided to go ahead. We took this Sunday and went ahead and decided to teach through these last few chapters of Judges here. Um, one is because they're there. And so we have to assume that God's word is, is, is there, is lively and active, and it's, it's something that we're meant to learn from and grow in. That's one. Um, two, um, I think there is still something potent about this, and there's something potent to me about this. So the Bible, obviously, is, is probably, I would say, there's not a close second, the most criticized book ever written. I don't know how many millions and millions and millions of pages have been written criticizing the Bible. Um, Billy Graham once remarked that the Bible, um, the Bible is the anvil around which the hammers lay broken. Um, and I, I think that's a beautiful picture, and there's some very good truth to that. Um, it, the best shots have been taken, for sure, for generations, and for at least 2,000 and many more years. One of the things to me, personally, that gives me confidence in the Bible is that stuff like this is in it. I mean, if I was making up a book... If I was inventing this, and if I was editing it, I wouldn't have these last few chapters of Judges in there. They're just gross. Um, they're, they're disturbing that, there's, that, that God's people would behave in the ways that we're going to see is, is just not okay. I literally, guys, if you've never read these last few chapters of Judges, I literally feel uncomfortable reading them. So I'm going to be telling the story so that I can um, censor language for this population. I really think that if I just read them, it would be inappropriate for this, this population at times. Not because it's questionable, but because what goes on is so gruesome and graphic that, that I feel like 
I need to make sure that it's appropriate for all audiences, right, um, that are here this morning. So that's, that's how bad this stuff is. If you were making up this book, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have the book of Job at all. Um, you wouldn't have most of the book of Genesis. You would certainly not end um, uh, Jonah in chapter 4. I mean, you would, and you would cut these chapters, and you wouldn't mention Samson, um, at least not most of Samson's story. You would not, you would definitely leave Jephthah out. I mean, like, right? None of us like him. And so you would, you would have all kinds of, like, this would, be, this would be a much cleaned up version. The fact that it's here lends credence to this book. That's important. Um, and then the third reason is we're about to jump into the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth is going to be, for those of you who have been here week after week through the book of Judges, the book of Ruth is going to be um, like your happy place after the book of Judges. Um, it's, the, the book of Judges is so raw, and then we get to the book of Ruth, and it is, it is so beautiful. I mean, it's, it, is, it is the easiest and maybe one of the funnest things in the entire Bible for me to teach. Um, I have a total, for lack of a better term, kind of a man crush on Boaz. I, I think he is awesome. Everyone who's ever even studied Ruth totally is in love with Ruth. I mean, this, is, this book is awesome. And these, these two people we're going to study are so fun to study um, that it's just going to be fantastic. So, um, <clears throat> and after today, you're going to feel like you need to shower. And so that's going uh, to be nice. All right. Um, we're going to note, you're going to notice in the book of, uh, in these last couple chapters, people are going to behave in ridiculous, nonsensical, straight, flat, evil, awful ways. And, and <clears throat> they're not going to talk to God about any of it. Um, God, even, even God of the Jews is going to be referenced like a pagan God. Um, he's going to be referenced as a kind of a good luck charm. Um, that if you make him happy, maybe your life will be blessed. This is um, they quite almost literally are going to treat God like he's one of those little cats with the waving arm in the, in the Asian restaurants, right? Or the, little, the fat little um, happy Buddha. Like this is, that's not what God is. As we sang this morning, that's, that's, not, that's not what God is. Um, and I, I suspect that was in, on purpose that John picked some of these songs to remind us today of all days that he is Lord, that he is king, that he is God, that he is, he's not some pagan little idol that we can make as we can. We don't get to recreate God in our image. Um, and so as uncomfortable as God makes you, um, yeah, that's part of it. And so as we continue to look at this, that's, this is, you're going to see. So we're introduced suddenly to a new character in the book of Judges here at the end of Judges 17. Um, a man who lives in Ephraim. Now remember, if you, if you do remember, um, Ephraimites have not exactly been heroes of the story up until now. Um, in fact, they've been kind of the villains almost every time they're introduced. But um, So this guy who lives in Ephraim, a guy named Micah, and he apparently he had stolen 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother. So already you like him, right? Um, this is a guy who steals silver from his own mother. Now, it's, people have tried to make a connection between the 1,100 pieces of silver that each of five Philistine kings gave to Delilah, but there honestly doesn't seem to be a connection. Um, if there is, it's been lost to history, um, but, but that's the same number. So, so he comes back and confesses to his mom, Mom, I, I stole the silver. And here it is. He gives it back to her. And, and she's so proud of her little boy, and again, he, he's probably an adult man, it looks like, because he has his own sons, but... Um, she's so proud of him for returning the 1,100 pieces of silver that, she, that he had stolen from her that in order to honor him, she decides to take some of that silver and make a couple of idols. 
Um, a graven image and an idol, a false god and, an, and, an, and a graven image. Um, and so he takes those, and he's, he's excited about that. And Micah then makes one of his sons a priest. Just, um, I kind of I think this is, I mean, he, currently, he just kind of got his license online here, right? I mean, he just sent in a check, and the church of somebody decided he was a priest. And so he's, he's now a priest. And by the way, that's not how it's done. And a Jewish audience reading this is going, What? Wait, wait, what? I mean, you're, so you, you made an idol and a graven image? Do you not? Did you miss the whole Ten Commandments thing? I mean, like right at the front, it says don't do that. And then we're going to just make that. You know what? We need a priest too. So, hey, son, you're now a priest. Priest. And, and so this is just kind of making this up as they go. And the explanation is, in those days, there was no king in Israel Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This has been the theme, really this is the theme verse for all of Judges. As we've seen, everybody try to do it their way. Their way is going to work out best. If I do this my way, if I do this my way, if I do this my way, and in the end, either it doesn't work out at all or God rescues them despite the fact that they've done it their way, not because of it. So um, then a Levite comes along. Now, so he's, he's made his son his priest. He's got a couple of idols. He's good to go, right? He's... He's ready to worship something. And so um, he's, made his, he's invented his little religion, and here comes a Levite happens to be wandering along. Why the Levite is here, why the Levite doesn't have an important role in Israel, don't know. But he's just wandering around. Micah finds him. So Micah decides, you know what? I need, a, I need to buy myself a Levite. And so he does. Now here's what's wild to me is 1,100 pieces of silver is what the son stole. He now offers the Levite 10 pieces of silver. And, and a shirt. Not kidding. Ten pieces of silver and a shirt. And the Levite jumps on this opportunity. Like, yes, this is, I mean, they, clergy went cheap in those days, apparently. Ten pieces of silver and a shirt. That's what it takes to buy this man's soul, apparently, is ten pieces of silver and a shirt. So he says, yeah, that'll be great. Hey, and you already have idols. Again, the Levite's not concerned with the fact, you really, I'll be honest with you, you really, as you read through this, you wrestle with, are they just that clueless? That even a Levite who is supposed to be in the priestly line, by the way, this guy's going to turn out to be in the, in the direct line of Moses. So surely he knew, probably Moses, you know, great-grandpa Moses, had like one of the, a cross-stitch Ten Commandments in his house somewhere, don't you think? Like, hey, remember that second one, No Idols? Remember that? So he just jumps on board. Hey, that sounds great. They have magical thinking. Oh, now God will really bless my house because not only do I have idols, yay, he loves those, and now I have a Levite. Man, things are going great for me. Um, and by the way, it's not going to go great for long, but the Levite decides, yeah, this is a good idea. Now, again, if you're a Jewish audience, you're saying, what? Were they ever really this backwards? Did they ever really not understand this? They were this confused. And if you're, if you're still confused, the author of Judges reminds you in 18.1, by the way, remember, there's no king in Israel. So let's show up to, to tribes real quick. Um, so we're about to meet. That, okay, that's, by the way, that, that's kind of where we are in that story. The tribe of Dan is about to show up. I don't know how many of them. <coughs> a few of them are spying. Um, out the land, because at this stage, whenever this is in the story of Judges, the people of Israel, the people of Dan, have still not conquered their part of the promised land. <clears throat> so here they are, however many years late getting their job done, 
And they decided, you know what, it's about time for us to find our own promised land, to find our own part of the promised land. So God had already set aside for them that, that yellow area in the top north where it says northern Dan, right? And so that's, that's Dan. That's going to be their tribe. So they finally, they finally decide it's time, so they send in a couple of spies to go check it out. Now, that always, because that always works out well for Israel when they send in spies first, right? Now, so, so then they, they, on their way there, they run into this Levite at the, Micah's bought and paid for Levite. So the tribe of Dan, and they kind of gather with him, and they, they kind of convince slash kidnap him um, because the tribe of Dan is going, hey, we, you know what? We ought to get ourselves a Levite. Micah's got a Levite. We want a Levite. So they steal Micah's Levite. I don't know if they offer him like an extra shirt every year or what the deal was they made for him. But they say, wouldn't it be cooler to be the Levite over a whole tribe rather than just one family? And the Levite apparently says yes. And so he goes, and by the way, and then they steal the silver idol and the graven image from Micah. And Micah's not happy about this. So Micah comes running out as the, as the, the Dan army is leaving and says, hey, you can't be doing that. And they say, you know what? You probably ought to watch your language before one of us loses our temper. So tail tucked between his legs, Micah goes back into his house and with one less Levite and two less idols. The people of Dan then defeat their enemies, take over the city um, and his idols. And the, the end of this story is, and for a long, long time, Dan had its own idols, its own ephod, um, by the way, they made an ephod. That's uh, something for finding out God's will, kind of a yes-no stone situation. God had blessed one of those for the high priest. At no other time is that ever instructed that's something anybody else is supposed to do, but they carry around a couple of rocks. Apparently, this Levite does. Right? He's his own high priest of his own religion. This is, this is amazing. Right? The people of Dan now live up there all by themselves. They have their own little religion and their own little priests and their own little gods and their own little ephod. And they have nothing to do with the other people of Israel. Why would they? Because they don't need them. They've got everything they need. This is meant to be considered such religious ridiculousness that any Jewish person is reading this going, Wait, they're doing what? Wait, what? They're, they, they understand so little about how God works and how this whole thing works that they thought... They thought this was a good strategy. And that's the end of that story. Then we get introduced to a new Levite. So here you go. Another Levite takes his, his concubine wife. This is what we're introduced to. So a concubine, by the way, um, whatever your image of that is, the Hebrew concepts and the ancient Middle East um, concepts of slavery and marriage and concubines and prostitution, and that kind of stuff, are very complex and they have a lot of laws that revolve around those that are, that are in the Bible and a lot more that aren't in the Bible. So it's not an easy conversation to have ever. I think a year or so ago, I taught a sermon on slavery um, entirely and the concept of lordship and slavery. Um, there's a great book called Is God a Moral Monster by a guy last name Copan, C-O-P-A-N, in which he does an in-depth discussion of things like biblical slavery and, and that kind of stuff. Highly recommended if that's something you're curious about. But um, uh, in this situation, we're not going to go into the details of that. This was more than just a slave of his, though. This was a wife. So it probably just means she was a wife, but she had maybe a little less ceremonial um, rights, and she probably didn't have inheritance rights. So she was what's called a slave wife, or in this case, a concubine. But she, he is referred to as her husband through most of this passage. 
her father is referred to as his father-in-law throughout this passage. So clearly this is not, if you picture something a little dark, it's not. This is, this is actually something that's supposed to be apparently kind of sweet. So what happens is she, she decides to go home to her father. She, gives, she doesn't want to be married or for whatever reason. We don't, we don't know the reason. She goes home to her father. So this Levite <clears throat> takes his servant and goes to get her. And, and by the way, the imagery here is very sweet. And he goes, it says, to go and speak nice words to her, right? You'll you, you remember Dead Poet Society? Why did humankind invent language? To woo women. That's right, exactly right. Um, that's what it's for, so we can, so we can talk to women. Because um, it was just men, we, wouldn't, we really wouldn't need language, um, to be honest. So um, not much of it anyway. So, uh, so here you have, um, that's what's happened. He's going to go speak nice words to her. He's going out of the gentleness of his heart. To go win back his bride. That's how he sees it. So this whole story, by the way, is meant to set you up for an emotional response, the way it's told. So they get there. They're going through the whole, um, that whole account. They get into the, um, this story. As they move into it, um, they go to, he goes to her father's house. And her father is just the nicest guy you've ever met. Um, he, he comes across as the sweetest man. Um, he, I'm not kidding. Like, I'm not being sarcastic. He, he's so nice. He plays this little ploy with the Levite that's really cute. He goes, um, hey, um, I know you've come to get my daughter, and I'm so proud you're here, and, and here she is. And it sounds like he's already convinced her you need to go back to your husband. And, and then Levite shows up. He goes, and by the way, you know what? It's late. You don't want to travel when it's late. Stay the night. Here, have a meal on me and, and stay the night. And he does. The next morning, the Levite gets up and he goes, oh, you don't want to leave first thing in the morning, right? I mean, who wants to go hungry? So have, have, have breakfast with me. And, and, then, and then after breakfast, he's like, oh, yeah, you don't want to travel now now that you've like had a big meal. So let's, and this, this kind of drags out, but it's really sweet. I mean, the, this old guy is, is just as nice and as hospitable. I mean, he wants the Levite to stay forever. It's clear. But the Levite wants to go back home. So at some point, finally, the Levite says, you know what? It's time for me to go. So you've got this beautiful little family. The Levite man, the, his, his wife, her awesome dad, the servant, and, and the, the Levite and his, and his wife, his young wife, they're going to head back home. And on the way, the servant says, it's getting kind of late. Let's stop in this city or that city. And he lists pagan cities, not Jewish cities. And the Levite says, no, no, no. No, we don't stay in pagan cities. They're, Jew they're cities with other Jews in them. We can, go, we can go stay in those cities. And so sure enough, when we get to this passage in, in uh, Judges 19, and he said to his young man, come and let us draw near to one of these places and, he, and, spent, the night, and spent the night at Gebeah or Ramah. So they passed on, past the pagan cities, and they went on their way. And the sun went down on them near Gebeah, which belongs to Benjamin. So keep in mind, remember, we've talked about this many times. Hospitality in the Middle East is law. I mean, it, is, it transcends religion at times. Um, in that part of the world still today, the part of why the Bedouin people who are Muslim fight in the Jewish army is because of the hospitality that the Israeli nation has shown to the Bedouin people when the other nations around won't let them come be nomads in their country but the Israelis will. And so the Bedouins, even though they're Muslim, fight against other Muslim countries on the side of the Israeli army because they've been shown such hospitality. They honor hospitality. 
Biblically, it is such an important thing that the hospitality is such an important thing that when the prophets come back later and explain why Sodom and Gomorrah was, were wiped out, Sodom and Gomorrah is considered a study and a lack of hospitality in the Jewish world, more than sexual sin, although that too, but really it's a study in what happens when you fail to be hospitable. God sent his angels and they failed to be hospitable, so God incinerated them. It's that important in that part of the world. So here you have a Levite coming into a city. We just saw how her dad showed such hospitality. Now watch what happens. And they turned aside there in verse 15 and to go in and spend the night in Gebeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. Remember, this is a, this is a good guy. You're already supposed to be irritated by this. You're already supposed to be saying, this is not good. Why is he not being shown? And you're already supposed to be reminded of Sodom and Gomorrah a little bit. Because that's what was happening with them. They were going to spend the night in the square. And Lot comes out and says, don't, no, don't spend the night in the square. So that's what's happening here. And then amazing. So this is already unacceptable. This, you're supposed to be irritated as the audience right now going, what's up with that? I mean, something's wrong with these people. The, the Levite, when a, when a stranger comes up to him, who, by the way, is a guest himself, he's not even a, a member of this town, comes up to him and says, don't spend the night out in the square, come stay with me. And so the Levite and his concubine and his servant go in to stay with him. And the, and the, the Levites, you can tell the Levite's confused. Why is no one taking me in? I even have my own supplies. I mean, no one would even have to, to feed me. They would just have to take me in. And then as if, to build up to this moment, and then all of a sudden, many of the, the people of Benjamin in this city show up and begin banging on the door, demanding that the guests all be thrown out back in the street so that the men, uh, the people, the people of Benjamin in this city can molest them. Now, this should totally remind you of Sodom and Gomorrah because it's almost the exact same language. It's, it's an awful situation. And, and they're confused and trapped, and they don't know what to do. Now, I, I will tell you, I have no place in my brain for what happens next. I got nothing. Just like I don't have anything in my brain for when Lot offers his daughters to the crowd, I have nothing in my brain that allows me to understand why the, the, decide, they decided, the, guy, the Levite decides to send his concubine out to this mob. But he does. And the language in the next little section is so I mean, the level of rage that you're supposed to be feeling at this point at these people is, is like almost pegged out. Like you cannot even fathom. Like you, this is kind of a, I really want to get my hands on these people moment. Unacceptable. The Levite is stunned by the hospitality. Now this, now, so listen to this. Um, in this case, because there are no avenging angels to rescue them, the Levite gives the crazed mob of Benjaminites his wife. Remember her, the sweet daughter of the kind father who we met. After they're done with her, she drags herself back to her husband, who, by the way, is now called her master, not her husband. I don't know if that's meant to be a slap at him. I think he deserves it. I don't know what to do with it. But, and laying her hand on the threshold of the door dies because of the abuse she has faced. She has been abused to death, and the image created is almost certainly that she dies with her hands on the door, so that the next morning when he opens the door, her hands fall across the threshold into the room with him. 
and he has a psychotic break. He is so filled with rage. Again, I don't know why he feels no sense of responsibility himself. I don't understand the culture well enough. He is so filled with rage that he divides her into pieces and sends her all across the land of Israel, a piece to each tribe, and says, is this who we are? Is this what we do? Now, in case you think that the people of Israel are so hardened as a group that they would overlook this, what happens is, then the other tribes of Israel gather together an army and march on the tribe of Benjamin and almost exterminate them. They march on the people of, of Benjamin, who, by the way, aren't, aren't going to give up. They, they hold themselves up in a city and keep fighting and eventually get wiped out and wiped out and wiped out. And, and by the way, a lot of people of Israel die in this process too. This is the only time you have them talk to God at all. And finally they ask God, should we keep going? And God's letting a lot of them die. And finally he says, this time you'll take them. And they do. And they essentially wipe them out. Down to a few dozen men. That's it. Everybody else in the tribe of Benjamin is dead. So that's, that's one tribe. They will never recover. The tribe of Benjamin will always be the smallest tribe until they lose track of the tribes from this. Now, so, so here you have... That much brokenness. And that's where you're supposed to be, by the way. You're supposed to have this idea. And then they go through these, all these concocted little ways to get these handful of men wives because all of them have sworn they're going to let them all die. And now that they're not as enraged anymore and their kind of you know, desire to kill has been sated, and now the people are saying, like, we, gosh, we just nearly wiped out one of our own tribes. We need to probably help them recover somehow. So they do. The degree of savagery here um, is off the charts. The emotion of rage and revulsion are what you're supposed to feel here. The degree of savagery drives him over the edge. Yeah, that's what he does. So here you go. Here's where we are. The tribe of Dan. No, wait a second. Um, we know that Eli at this point is the priest. Well, you read about that if you start in Samuel. Eli is the priest and his sons are running the tabernacle like it's a speakeasy. Every vice you would want all in one place at the tabernacle in Shiloh. The Benjaminites are savages who now have been nearly extinguished from the surface of the planet. The tribe of Dan is worshiping idols in their own little religion and their own little people up in the northern part of Israel. Soon the Philistines are going to show up to this fractured people and just, and just wax them. And in the end, they're going to destroy the, the tabernacle in Shiloh. They're going to wipe out most of the people of Israel. They're going to steal the Ark of the Covenant. Um, all of this is going to happen, and this is just built and built and built and built to this. It's it is not a good place to end a book. I don't know who. I mean, you talk about a tragedy. This is a literary tragedy in the extreme. Everything is broken. There's not, there's not a funeral. There's a funeral for a tribe of people. It is, it is a nightmare way to end a story. And by the way, it ends once again with, in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the consequence of everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. That's the message of the book of Judges, one of the main themes. It's, it's kind of like one of my favorite um, posters is a, a quote about the government that says, if, if you think our problems are bad, just wait till you see our solutions. This is the same, that, welcome to the race of mankind. You think our problems are bad? Wait till you watch us try to solve them ourselves. We, there is no situation that a group of humans cannot make worse. Nothing so bad that we can't solve it in such a way that makes it worse and worse. Um, that's impressive. We have learned from this book that we should not be looking for our way. 
Our way of doing things is not trustworthy. We need someone to guide us. We need a shepherd. We need someone to look to. We need the voice of reason and truth to guide us through this. Um, this, is, this is a, it's just hard. It's hard to read. It's hard to study. Here's the good news. The good news is, when you study this era and you go, could there be anything bright and shining? Is there anything redeemable in this whole thing? Is God just involved at all? And the answer is yes. And you're going to meet them next week. And for the next few weeks as we work towards Advent, you're going to see, just like is going to happen a few hundred years later, God is going to step in in a dark, um, purposeless, just utterly destructive community, and he's going to step in and he's going to send a rescuer. And that rescuer is going to start the process of turning everything around. So as we go through Advent, it's going to make total sense as we study the book of Ruth and as we study Ruth and Boaz and see, because Ruth and Boaz are probably um, contemporaries to the concubine who was killed. She's from, Benjamin, she's from Bethlehem, just like Boaz is. And so there's every reason, there's a decent possibility that Boaz would have known her and would have known her story. Boaz may have been one of the men who went and helped slaughter the Benjaminites. It would not be unlikely either. Boaz may have known Samson. He may have known Jephthah. We don't know exactly where to put him in the story of Judges. There's a differences of opinion on that. But in the midst of a dark, perverse place where everyone did what was right in their own eyes, we're going to meet a man and a woman who don't. And they go so far above and beyond the call of duty in not doing what is right in their own eyes that it makes for one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible. So if you're like me, you're hungry for that after studying Judges. So we'll pick up with a little bit left here next week and then move straight into those stories as we move into Advent. Um, so uh, feel free to, if you've been keeping people safe from the book of Judges, you can invite them back from ch to church. It's okay now. So um, Let's pray that God will continue to lead us. Father, we're, we're so grateful for what you're doing. Um, God, thank you for, um, God, even in something awful like this, and I know so many people in this room have experienced abuse as well. Um, even abuse like this. And Lord, your ability to rescue and redeem, your ability to make things right and pure and holy and just um, is off the charts. God, I know it must fill you with the same rage, and I know that there will come a day when you make things right. Um, Lord, that it, is, it is studying stuff like this and seeing how 1,500 3,000, excuse me, 3,000 years later, we still have stuff like this going on. We have not improved our condition. And we need a Savior. And I pray that, that you would continue to use your church to be the remnant to make a difference in the world, to step in and make a difference and have an impact um, where man's way of doing things just keeps getting worse. And week after week, day after day, as new things come out, as the darkness and depravity of humans, um, I, I pray, Lord, that, that you would redeem your people so that we would live different lives and show a different option to people. And we ask this in the name of your magnificent Son. Amen.